Book Two, Chapter Twenty Eight of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches, Chapter Twenty Eight, An Appearance in the Marshalsea. The opinion of the community outside the prison gates bore hard on Clennam as time went on, and he made no friends among the community within. Too depressed to associate with the herd in the yard, who got together to forget their cares, too retiring and too unhappy to join in the poor socialities of the tavern, he kept his own room and was held in distrust. Some said he was proud, some objected that he was sullen and reserved, some were contemptuous of him for that he was a poor-spirited dog who pined under his debts. The whole population were shy of him on these various counts of indictment, but especially the last, which involved a species of domestic treason, and he soon became so confirmed in his seclusion that his only time for walking up and down was when the evening club were assembled at their songs and toasts and sentiments, and when the yard was nearly left to the women and children. Imprisonment began to tell upon him. He knew that he idled and moped, after what he had known of the influences of imprisonment within the four small walls of the very room he occupied, this consciousness made him afraid of himself. Shrinking from the observation of other men, and shrinking from his own, he began to change very sensibly. Anybody might see that the shadow of the wall was dark upon him. One day, when he might have been some ten or twelve weeks in jail, and when he had been trying to read, and had not been able to release even the imaginary people of the book from the marshalsea, a footstep stopped at his door, and a hand tapped at it. He arose and opened it, and an agreeable voice accosted him with, "'How do you do, Mr. Clennam? I hope I'm not unwelcome in calling to see you.' It was the sprightly young barnacle Ferdinand. He looked very good-natured and prepossessing, though overpoweringly gay and free, in contrast with the squalid prison." "'You're surprised to see me, Mr. Clennam,' he said, taking the seat which Clennam offered him. "'I must confess to being much surprised. Not disagreeably, I hope?' "'By no means.' "'Thank you. Frankly,' said the engaging young barnacle, "'I've been excessively sorry to hear that you were under the necessity of temporary retirement here, and I hope, of course as between two private gentlemen, that our place has had nothing to do with it.' "'Your office?' "'Our circumlocution place. "'I cannot charge any part of my reverses upon that remarkable establishment.' "'Upon my life,' said the vivacious young barnacle, "'I am heartily glad to know it. "'It is quite a relief to me to hear you say it. "'I should have so exceedingly regretted our place having had anything to do with your difficulties.' "'Clennam again assured him that he absolved it of the responsibility. "'That's right,' said Ferdinand. "'I am very happy to hear it.' I was rather afraid in my own mind that we might have helped to floor you, because there is no doubt that it is our misfortune to do that kind of thing now and then. We don't want to do it, but if men will be gravelled, why, we can't help it." "'Without giving an unqualified assent to what you say,' returned Arthur gloomily, "'I am much obliged to you for your interest in me.' "'No, but really, our place is,' said the easy young barnacle, "'the most inoffensive place possible.' You'll say we are a humbug. I won't say we are not. But all that sort of thing is intended to be, and must be, don't you see?' "'I do not,' said Clennam. "'You don't regard it from the right point of view. 
It is the point of view that it is the essential thing. Regard our place from the point of view that we only ask you to leave us alone, and we are as capital a department as you'll find anywhere. Is your place there to be left alone? asked Clennam. You exactly hit it, returned Ferdinand. It is there with the express intention that everything shall be left alone. That is what it means. That is what it's for. No doubt there's a certain form to be kept up, that it's for something else, but it's only a form. Why, good heaven, we are nothing but forms. Think what a lot of our forms you have gone through, and you have never got any nearer to an end. Never, said Clennam. Look at it from the right point of view, and there you have us, official and effectual. It's like a limited game of cricket. A field of outsiders are always going in to bowl at the public service, and we block the balls." Clennam asked what became of the bowlers. The airy young barnacle replied that they grew tired, got dead beat, got lamed, got their backs broken, died off, gave it up, went in for other games. "'And this occasions me to congratulate myself again.' he pursued, on the circumstance that our place has had nothing to do with your temporary retirement. It very easily might have had a hand in it, because it is undeniable that we are sometimes a most unlucky place in our effects upon people who will not leave us alone. Mr. Clennam, I am quite unreserved with you. As between yourself and myself, I know I may be. I was so when I first saw you making the mistake of not leaving us alone, because I perceived that you were inexperienced and sanguine, and had, I hope you'll not object to my saying, some simplicity. Not at all. Some simplicity. Therefore I felt what a pity it was, and I went out of my way to hint to you, which really was not official, but I never am official when I can help it, something to the effect that, if I were you, I wouldn't bother myself. However, you did bother yourself, and you have since bothered yourself. Now, don't do it any more." "'I am not likely to have the opportunity,' said Clennam. "'Oh, yes, you are. You leave here. Everybody leaves here. There are no ends of ways of leaving here. Now, don't come back to us. That entreaty is the second object of my call. Pray don't come back to us. Upon my honour said Ferdinand, in a very friendly and confiding way. "'I shall be greatly vexed if you don't take warning by the past, and keep away from us.' "'And the invention?' said Clennam. "'My good fellow,' returned Ferdinand, "'if you'll excuse the freedom of that form of address, nobody wants to know of the invention, and nobody cares tuppence halfpenny about it.' "'Nobody in the office, that is to say.' "'Nor out of it.' Everybody is ready to dislike and ridicule any invention. You have no idea how many people want to be left alone. You have no idea how the genius of the country—overlook the parliamentary nature of the phrase, and don't be bored by it—tends to being left alone. Believe me, Mr. Clennam," said the sprightly young barnacle, in his pleasantest manner, "'our place is not a wicked giant, to be charged at full tilt, but only a windmill showing you, as it grinds immense quantities of chaff, which way the country wind blows." "'If I could believe that,' said Clennam, "'it would be a dismal prospect for all of us.' "'Oh, don't say so,' returned Ferdinand. "'It's all right. We must have humbug. We all like humbug. We couldn't get on without humbug. A little humbug and a groove and everything goes on admirably, if you leave it alone.' 
With this hopeful confession of his faith, as the head of the rising barnacles who were born a woman, to be followed under a variety of watchwords which they utterly repudiated and disbelieved, Ferdinand rose. Nothing could be more agreeable than his frank and courteous bearing, or adapted with a more gentlemanly instinct to the circumstances of his visit. "'Is it fair to ask?' he said, as Clennam gave him his hand with a real feeling of thankfulness for his candour and good humour, "'whether it is true that our late lamented Myrtle is the cause of this passing inconvenience?' "'I am one of the many he has ruined, yes.' "'He must have been an exceedingly clever fellow,' said Ferdinand Barnacle. Arthur, not being in the mood to extol the memory of the deceased, was silent. "'A consummate rascal, of course,' said Ferdinand, "'but remarkably clever.' One cannot help admiring the fellow. Must have been such a master of humbug. Knew people so well, got over them so completely, did so much with them. In his easy way, he was really moved to genuine admiration. "'I hope,' said Arthur, "'that he and his dupes may be a warning to people not to have so much done with them again.' "'My dear Mr. Clennam,' returned Ferdinand, laughing, have you really such a verdant hope? The next man who has as large a capacity and as genuine a taste for swindling will succeed as well. Pardon me, but I think you really have no idea how the human bees will swarm to the beating of any old tin kettle. In that fact lies the complete manual of governing them. When they can be got to believe that the kettle is made of the precious metals, in that fact lies the whole power of men, like our late lamented. "'No doubt there are here and there,' said Ferdinand politely, "'exceptional cases, where people have been taken in for what appeared to them to be much better reasons, and I need not go far to find such a case. But they don't invalidate the rule. Good day. I hope that when I have the pleasure of seeing you, next, this passing cloud will have given place to sunshine. Don't come a step beyond the door. I know the way out perfectly. Good day.' With those words, the best and brightest of the barnacles went downstairs, hummed his way through the lodge, mounted his horse in the front courtyard, and rode off to keep an appointment with his noble kinsman, who wanted a little coaching before he could triumphantly answer certain infidel snobs who were going to question the knobs about their statesmanship. He must have passed Mr. Rugg on his way out, for a minute or two afterwards that ruddy-headed gentleman shone in at the door like an elderly Phoebus. "'How!' "'Do you do to-day, sir?' said Mr. Rugg. "'Is there any little thing I can do for you to-day, sir?' "'No, I thank you.' Mr. Rugg's enjoyment of embarrassed affairs was like a housekeeper's enjoyment in pickling and preserving, or a washerwoman's enjoyment of a heavy wash, or a dustman's enjoyment of an overflowing dustbin, or any other professional enjoyment of a mess in the way of business. "'I still look round.' "'From time to time, sir,' said Mr. Rugg cheerfully, "'to see whether any lingering detainers are accumulating at the gate. "'They have fallen in pretty thick, sir, as thick as we could have expected.' He remarked upon the circumstance as if it were a matter of congratulation, rubbing his hands briskly and rolling his head a little. "'As thick,' repeated Mr. Rugg, "'as we could reasonably have expected. "'Quite a shower bath of them.' I don't often intrude upon you now, when I look round, because I know you're not inclined for company, and that if you wished to see me, you would leave word in the lodge. 
but I am here pretty well every day, sir. Would this be an unseasonable time, sir, asked Mr. Rugg coaxingly, for me to offer an observation? As seasonable a time as any other. Hmm. Public opinion, sir, said Mr. Rugg, has been busy with you. I don't doubt it. Might it not be advisable, sir, said Mr. Rugg, more coaxingly yet, now to make, at last and after all, a trifling concession to public opinion? We all do it, in one way or another. The fact is, we must do it. I cannot set myself right with it, Mr. Rugg, and have no business to expect that I ever shall. Don't say that, sir. Don't say that. A cost of being moved to the bench is almost insignificant. And if the general feeling is strong that you ought to be there, why, really— I thought you had settled, Mr. Rugg, said Arthur, that my determination to remain here was a matter of taste. Well, sir, well, but is it good taste? Is it good taste? That's the question. Mr. Rugg was so soothingly persuasive as to be quite pathetic. I was almost going to say, is it good feeling? This is an extensive affair of yours, and your remaining here, where a man can come for a pound or two, is remarked upon as not in keeping. It is not in keeping. I can't tell you, sir, in how many quarters I heard it mentioned. I heard comments made upon it last night in a parlour, frequented by what I should call, if I did not look in there now and then myself, the best legal company, I heard there comments on it that I was sorry to hear. They hurt me on your account. Again, only this morning at breakfast, my daughter, but a woman, you'll say, yet still with a feeling for these things, and even with some little personal experience, as the plaintiff in Rag and Borkins, was expressing her great surprise, her great surprise. Now, under these circumstances, and considering that none of us can quite set ourselves above public opinion, wouldn't a trifling concession to that opinion be? Come, sir, said Rugg, I will put it on the lowest ground of argument, and say, amiable. Arthur's thoughts had once more wandered away to Little Dorrit, and the question remained unanswered. As to myself, sir, said Mr. Rugg, hoping that his eloquence had reduced him to a state of indecision, it is a principle of mine, not to consider myself when a client's inclinations are in the scale. But, knowing your considerate character and general wish to oblige, I will repeat that I should prefer your being in the bench. Your case has made a noise. It is a creditable case to be professionally concerned in. I should feel on a better standing with my connection if you went to the bench. Don't let that influence you, sir. I merely state the fact. So errant had the prisoner's attention already grown in solitude and dejection, and so accustomed had it become to commune with only one silent figure within the ever-frowning walls, that Clennam had to shake off a kind of stupor before he could look at Mr. Rugg, recall the thread of his talk, and hurriedly say, "'I am unchanged and unchangeable in my decision. Pray let it be, let it be.' Mr. Rugg, without concealing that he was nettled and mortified, replied, "'Oh, beyond a doubt, sir. I have travelled out of the record, sir. 
I'm aware in putting the point to you, but really, when I heard it remarked in several companies, and in very good company, that however worthy of a foreigner, he is not worthy of the spirit of an Englishman to remain in the marshal, see, when the glorious liberties of his island home admit of his removal to the bench, I thought I would depart from the narrow professional line marked out to me and mention it. Personally, said Mr. Rugg, I have no opinion on the topic. That's well, returned Arthur. Oh, none at all, sir, said Mr. Rugg. If I had, I should have been unwilling, some minutes ago, to see a client of mine visited in this place by a gentleman of a high family riding a saddle horse. But it was not my business. If I had, I might have wished to be now empowered to mention to another gentleman, a gentleman of military exterior, at present waiting in the lodge, that my client had never intended to remain here, and was on the eve of removal to a superior abode. But my course, as a professional machine, is clear. I have nothing to do with it. Is it your good pleasure to see the gentleman, sir? Who is waiting to see me, did you say? I did take that unprofessional liberty, sir, hearing that I was your professional adviser. He declined to interpose before my very limited function was performed. Happily, said Mr. Rugg, with sarcasm, I did not so far travel out of the record as to ask the gentleman for his name. I suppose I have no resource but to see him, sighed Clennam wearily. Then it is your good pleasure, sir, retorted Rugg. Am I honoured by your instructions to mention as much to the gentleman as I pass out? I am. Thank you, sir. I take my leave. His leave he took accordingly in dudgeon. The gentleman of military exterior had so imperfectly awakened Clennam's curiosity, in the existing state of his mind, that a half-forgetfulness of such a visitor's having been referred to, was already creeping over it as a part of the sombre veil which almost always dimmed it now when a heavy footstep on the stairs aroused him. It appeared to ascend them, not very promptly or spontaneously, yet with a display of stride and clatter meant to be insulting. As it paused for a moment on the landing outside his door, he could not recall his association with the peculiarity of its sound, though he thought he had one. Only a moment was given him for consideration. His door was immediately swung open by a thump, and in the doorway stood the missing Blandois, the cause of many anxieties. "'Solve, fellow Gilbert,' said he. "'You want me, it seems. Here I am.' Before Arthur could speak to him in his indignant wonder, Cavalletto followed him into the room. Mr. Panks followed Cavalletto. Neither of the two had been there since its present occupant had had possession of it. Mr. Panks, breathing hard, sidled near the window, put his hat on the ground, stirred his hair up with both hands, and folded his arms, like a man who had come to a pause in a hard day's work. Mr. Baptist, never taking his eyes from his dreaded chum of old, softly sat down on the floor with his back against the door, and one of his ankles in each hand, resuming the attitude, except that it was now expressive of unwinking watchfulness, in which he had sat before the same man in the deeper shade of another prison, one hot morning at Marseilles. "'I have on the witnessing of these two madmen,' said M. Blandois, otherwise Lanier, otherwise Rigaud, "'that you want me, brother Bird. Here I am.' Glancing round contemptuously at the bedstead, which was turned up by day, he leaned his back against it as a resting-place, without removing his hat from his head, and stood defiantly lounging with his hands in his pockets.' 
"'You villain of ill omen,' said Arthur, "'you have purposely cast a dreadful suspicion upon my mother's house. Why have you done it? What prompted you to the devilish invention?' Monsieur Rigaud, after frowning at him for a moment, laughed. "'Here is noble gentleman. Listen, all the world, to this creature of virtue. But take care, take care. It is possible, my friend, that your ardour is a little compromising. Holy blue, it is possible.' "'Signore,' interposed Cavalletto, also addressing Arthur, "'for to commence, hear me. I received your instructions to find him. Rigaud, is it not?' "'It is the truth. I go, consequentimentally. It would have given Mrs. Plornish great concern if she could have been persuaded that his occasional lengthening of an adverb in this way was the chief fault of his English. First, among my countrymen, I ask them what news in Londra of foreigners arrived. Then I go among the French. Then I go among the Germans. They all tell me. The great part of us know well the other.' and they all tell me, but no person can tell me nothing of him, Rigor, fifteen times," said Cavalletto, thrice throwing out his left hand with all its fingers spread, and doing it so rapidly that the sense of sight could hardly follow the action. I ask of him, in every place, where go the foreigners, and fifteen times, repeating the same swift performance, they know nothing, but— at this significant Italian rest on the word but, his backhanded shake of his right forefinger came into play, a very little and very cautiously. But, after a long time, when I have not been able to find that he is here in Lundra, someone tells me of a soldier with white hair. Eh? Hey, not hair like this that he carries. White? Who lives retired sacramentally in a certain place? But— with another rest upon the word, who sometimes, in the after-dinner, walks and smokes. It is necessary, as they say in Italy, and as they know, poor people, to have patience. I have patience. I ask, where is this certain place? One believes it is here. One believes it is there. Eh, well, it is not here. It is not there. I wait patiently, cementally. At last I find it. Then I watch. Then I hide, until he walks and smokes. He is a soldier, with grey hair, but—a very decided rest indeed, and a very vigorous play from side to side of the back-handed forefinger—he is also this man that you see. It was noticeable that, in his old habit of submission to one who had been at the trouble of asserting superiority over him, he even then bestowed upon Rigaud a confused bend of his head after thus pointing him out. "'Eh, well, signore,' he cried in conclusion, addressing Arthur again, "'I wait for a good opportunity. I writed some words to Signor Panko.' An air of novelty came over Mr. Panks with this designation. "'To come and help. I showed him rigor at his window to Signor Panko, who was often the spy in the day. I slept at night near the door of the house. At last we entered.' only this to-day, and now you see him, as he would not come up in presence of the illustrious advocate. Such was Mr. Baptist's honourable mention of Mr. Rugg. We waited down below there, together, and Signor Panko guarded the street. 
At the close of this recital, Arthur turned his eyes upon the impudent and wicked face. As it met his, the nose came down over the moustache, and the moustache went up under the nose. When nose and moustache had settled into their places again, Monsieur Rigaud loudly snapped his fingers half a dozen times, bending forward to jerk the snaps at Arthur, as if they were palpable missiles which he jerked into his face. "'Now, philosopher,' said Rigaud, "'what do you want with me?' "'I want to know,' returned Arthur, without disguising his abhorrence, "'how you dare direct a suspicion of murder against my mother's house.' "'Dare!' cried Rigaud. "'Oh, hear him! Dare! Is it dare? By heaven, my small boy! But you are a little imprudent!' "'I want that suspicion to be cleared away,' said Arthur. "'You shall be taken there, and be publicly seen. I want to know, moreover, what business you had there, when I had a burning desire to fling you downstairs. Don't frown at me, man. I've seen enough of you to know that you are a bully and a coward. I need no revival of my spirits from the effects of this wretched place to tell you so plain a fact, and one that you know so well.' White to the lips, Rigaud stroked his moustache, muttering, "'By heaven, my small boy, but you are a little compromising of my lady, your respectable mother,' and seemed for a minute undecided how to act. His indecision was soon gone. He sat himself down with a threatening swagger, and said, "'Give me a bottle of wine. You can buy wine here. Send one of your madmen to get me a bottle of wine. I won't talk to you without wine. Come.' "'Yes or no?' "'Fetch him what he wants, Cavaletto,' said Arthur scornfully, producing the money. "'Contraband beast,' added Rigaud. "'Bring port wine. I will drink nothing but porto porto.' The contraband beast, however, assuring all present, with a significant finger, that he peremptorily declined to leave his post at the door, Signor Panko offered his services. He soon returned with the bottle of wine— which, according to the custom of the place, originating in a scarcity of corkscrews among the collegians, in common with a scarcity of much else, was already open for use. "'Madman! A large glass!' said Rigaud. Signor Panko put a tumbler before him, not without a visible conflict of feeling on the question of throwing it at his head. "'Ha, ha, ha!' boasted Rigaud. "'Once a gentleman, and always a gentleman!' A gentleman from the beginning, and a gentleman to the end. What a devil! A gentleman must be waited on, I hope. It's a part of my character to be waited on. He half filled the tumbler as he said it, and drank off the contents, when he had done saying it. Ha! Smacking his lips. Not a very old prisoner, that. I judge by your looks, brave sir, that imprisonment will subdue your blood much sooner than it softens this hot wine. You are mellowing, losing body and colour already. I salute you. He tossed off another glass, holding it up, both before and afterwards, so as to display his small white hand. To business, he then continued, to conversation. You have shown yourself more free of speech than body, sir. I have used the freedom of telling you what you know yourself to be. You know yourself, as we all know you, to be far worse than that. Add always a gentleman, and it's no matter. 
except in that regard we are all alike. For example, you couldn't for your life be a gentleman. I couldn't for my life be otherwise. How great the difference! Let us go on. Words, sir, never influence the course of the cards, or the course of the dice. Do you know that? You do? I also play a game, and words are without power over it. Now that he was confronted with Cavalletto, and knew that his story was known, whatever thin disguise he had worn, he dropped, and faced it out, with a bare face, as the infamous wretch he was. No, my son, he resumed with a snap of his fingers, I play my game to the end in spite of words, and death of my body, and death of my soul. I'll win it. You want to know why I play this little trick that you have interrupted? Know, then, that I had, and that I have—do you understand me?—have a commodity to sell to my lady, your respectable mother. I described my precious commodity, and fixed my price. Touching the bargain, your admirable mother was a little too calm, too stolid, too immovable and statue-like. In fine, your admirable mother vexed me. To make variety in my position, and to amuse myself, for what? A gentleman must be amused at somebody's expense. I conceived the happy idea of disappearing. An idea, see you, that your characteristic mother and my flint winch would have been well enough pleased to execute. Ah! Bah! 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 Don't look as from high to low at me. I repeat it. Well enough pleased, excessively enchanted, and with all their hearts ravaged. How strongly will you have it? He threw out the leaves of his glass on the ground, so that they nearly spattered Cavalletto. This seemed to draw his attention to him anew. He set down his glass and said, I'll not fill it. What? I am born to be served. Come then, you Cavalletto, and fill. The little man looked at Clennam, whose eyes were occupied with rigor, and, seeing no prohibition, got up from the ground, and poured out from the bottle into the glass. The blending, as he did so, of his old submission, with a sense of something humorous, the striving of that with a certain smouldering ferocity, which might have flashed fire in an instant, as the born gentleman seemed to think, for he had a wary eye upon him, and the easy yielding of all to a good-natured, careless, predominant propensity to sit down on the ground again, formed a very remarkable combination of character. "'This happy idea, brave sir,' Rigaud resumed after drinking, "'was a happy idea for several reasons. It amused me. It worried your dear mamma and my flint-winch. It caused you agonies. My terms for a lesson in politeness towards a gentleman, and it suggested to all the amiable persons interested that your entirely devoted is a man to fear. By heaven, he is a man to fear. Beyond this, it might have restored her wit to my lady your mother, might, under the pressing little suspicion your wisdom has recognized, have persuaded her at last to announce, covertly, in the journals, that the difficulties of a certain contract would be removed by the appearance of a certain important party to it, 
Perhaps yes, perhaps no. But that you have interrupted. Now, what is it you say? What is it you want? Never had Clennam felt more acutely that he was a prisoner in bonds than when he saw this man before him and could not accompany him to his mother's house. All the undiscernible difficulties and dangers he had ever feared were closing in, when he could not stir hand or foot. Perhaps, my friend, philosopher, man of virtue, imbecile, what you will, perhaps, said Rigaud, pausing in his drink to look out of his glass with his horrible smile. You would have done better to leave me alone. Now, at least, said Clennam, you are known to be alive and unharmed. At least you cannot escape from these two witnesses, and they can produce you before any public authorities, or before hundreds of people. But will not produce me before one, said Rigaud, snapping his fingers again with an air of triumphant menace. To the devil with your witnesses! To the devil with your produced! To the devil with yourself! What, do I know what I know for that? Have I my commodity on sale for that? <laughs> Poor debtor! You have interrupted my little project. Let it pass. How then? What remains? To you nothing. To me all. Produce me. Is that what you want? I will produce myself only too quickly. Contrabandist! Give me pen, ink, and paper. Cavalletto got up again as before, and laid them before him in his former manner. Rigor, after some villainous thinking and smiling, wrote and read aloud as follows. To Mrs. Glenham. Wait, answer. Prison of the Marshalsea, at the apartment of your son. Dear Madame, I am in despair to be informed to-day by a prisoner here, who has had the goodness to employ spies to seek me, living for politic reasons in retirement, that you have had fears for my safety. Reassure yourself, dear madame, I am well, I am strong and constant. With the greatest impatience I should fly to your house, but that I foresee it to be possible, under the circumstances, that you will not yet have quite definitely arranged the little proposition I have had the honour to submit to you. I name one week from this day, for a last final visit on my part, when you will unconditionally accept it or reject it with its train of consequences. I suppress my ardour to embrace you and achieve this interesting business, in order that you may have leisure to adjust its details to our perfect mutual satisfaction. In the meanwhile, it is not too much to propose, our prisoner having deranged my housekeeping, that my expenses of lodging and nourishment at an hotel shall be paid by you. Receive, dear madam, the assurance of my highest and most distinguished consideration. Rigor Blandois. A thousand friendships to that dear Flintwinch. I kiss the hands of Madame F. When he had finished this epistle, Rigor folded it, and tossed it with a flourish at Clennam's feet. Hola, you! Apropos of producing, 
let somebody produce that at its address, and produce the answer here. Cavaletto, said Arthur, will you take this fellow's letter? But Cavaletto's significant finger, again expressing that his post was at the door, to keep watch over Rigaud, now he had found him with so much trouble, and that the duty of his post was to sit on the floor, backed up by the door, looking at Rigaud, and holding his own ankles, Signor Panko once more volunteered. His services being accepted, Cavaletto suffered the door to open barely wide enough to admit of his squeezing himself out, and immediately shut it on him. "'Touch me with a finger. Touch me with an epithet. Question my superiority, as I sit here, drinking my wine at my pleasure,' said Rigaud, "'and I follow the letter, and cancel my week's grace. You wanted me? You have got me. How do you like me?' "'You know,' returned Clennam, with a bitter sense of his helplessness, "'that when I sought you, I was not a prisoner.' "'To the devil with you and your prison!' retorted Rigaud, leisurely, as he took from his pocket a case containing the materials for making cigarettes, and employed his facile hands in folding a few for present use. "'I care for neither of you, contrabandist. A light.' Again Cavaletto got up and gave him what he wanted. There had been something dreadful in the noiseless skill of his cold white hands, with the fingers lithely twisting about, and twining one over another like serpents. Clennam could not prevent himself from shuddering inwardly, as if he had been looking on at a nest of those creatures. "'Hola, pig!' cried Rigaud, with a noisy stimulating cry, as if Cavaletto were an Italian horse or mule. "'What? The infernal old jail!' was a respectable one to this. There was dignity in the bars and stones of that place. It was a prison for men. But this? Bah! A hospital for imbeciles. He smoked his cigarette out, with his ugly smile so fixed upon his face, that he looked as though he were smoking with his drooping beak of a nose, rather than with his mouth, like a fancy in a weird picture. When he had lighted a second cigarette at the still-burning end of the first, he said to Clennam, "'One must pass the time in a madman's absence. One must talk. One can't drink strong wine all day long, or I would have another bottle. She's handsome, sir, though not exactly to my taste. Still, by the thunder and lightning, handsome. I felicitate you and your admiration.' "'I neither know nor ask.' said Clennam, of whom you speak. Della bella gawana, sir, as they say in Italy, of the gown, the fair gown, of whose husband you were the follower, I think. Sir, follower, you are insolent, the friend. Do you sell all your friends? Rigaud took his cigarette from his mouth, and eyed him with a momentary revelation of surprise, but he put it between his lips again, as he answered with coolness, "'I sell anything that commands a price. How do your lawyers live? Your politicians, your intriguers, your men of the exchange. How do you live? How do you come here? Have you sold no friend? Lady of mine, I rather think yes.' Clennam turned away from him towards the window, and sat looking out at the wall. "'Effectively, sir,' said Rigaud, "'society sells itself, and sells me, 
and I sell society. I perceive you have acquaintance with another lady, also handsome, a strong spirit. Let us see. How do they call her? Wade. He received no answer, but could easily discern that he had hit the mark. Yes, he went on. That handsome lady and strong spirit addresses me in the street. I am not insensible. I respond. That handsome lady and strong spirit does me the favour to remark in full confidence. I have my curiosity, and I have my chagrins. You are not more than ordinarily honourable, perhaps. I announce myself. Madame, a gentleman from the birth, and a gentleman to the death, but not more than ordinarily honourable. I despise such a weak fancy. Thereupon she is pleased to compliment. The difference between you and the rest is, she answers, that you say so. For she knows society. I accept her congratulations with gallantry and politeness. Politeness and little gallantries are inseparable from my character. She then makes a proposition which has in effect that she has seen us much together, that it appears to her that I am, for the passing time, the cat of the house, the friend of the family, that her curiosity and her chagrins awaken the fancy to be acquainted with their movements, to know the manner of their life, how the fair Gawana is beloved, how the fair Gawana is cherished, and so on. She is not rich, but offers such and such little recompenses for the little cares and derangements of such services, and I graciously, to do everything graciously, is the part of my character, consent to accept them. Oh, yes, so goes the world. It is the mode. Though Clennam's back was turned while he spoke, and thenceforth to the end of the interview, he kept those glittering eyes of his that were too near together upon him and evidently saw in the very carriage of the head, as he passed with his braggart recklessness from clause to clause of what he said, that he was saying nothing which Clennam did not already know. Whew! The fair Gawana! he said, lighting a third cigarette with a sound as if his lightest breath could blow her away. Charming, but imprudent! For it was not well of the fair Gawana! to make mysteries of letters from old lovers in her bedchamber on the mountain that her husband might not see them no no that was not well <laughs> the goanna was mistaken there i earnestly hope cried arthur aloud that panks may not be long gone for this man's presence pollutes the room ah but he'll flourish here and everywhere said Rigaud, with an exulting look and snap of his fingers. "'He always has. He always will.' Stretching his body out on the only three chairs in the room besides that on which Clennam sat, he sang, smiting himself on the breast, as the gallant personage of the song. "'Who passes by this road so late, compagnon de la Majolaine? Who passes by this road so late?' always gay sing the refrain pig you could sing it once in another jail sing it or by every saint who was stoned to death i'll be affronted and compromising and then some people who are not dead yet had better have been stoned along with them 
of all the king's knights tis the flower companion de la majolin of all the king's knights tis the flower always gay partly in his old habit of submission partly because his not doing it might injure his benefactor and partly because he would as soon do it as anything else cavalletto took up the refrain this time rigor laughed and fell to smoking with his eyes shut possibly another quarter of an hour elapsed before mr pank's step was heard upon the stairs but the interval seemed to clennam insupportably long his step was attended by another step and when cavalletto opened the door he admitted mr pank's and mr flintwinch the latter was no sooner visible than rigor rushed at him and embraced him boisterously how do you find yourself sir said mr flintwinch as soon as he could disengage himself which he struggled to do with very little ceremony thank you no i don't want any more this was in reference to another menace of attention from his recovered friend well arthur you remember what i said to you about sleeping dogs and missing ones it's come true you see he was as imperturbable as ever to all appearance and nodded his head in a moralizing way as he looked round the room and this is the marshalsea prison for debt said mr flintwinch ha <laughs> ha you have brought your pigs to a very indifferent market arthur if arthur had patience rigor had not he took his little flintwinch with fierce playfulness by the two lapels of his coat and cried to the devil with the market to the devil with the pigs and to the devil with the pig driver now give me the answer to my letter if you can make it convenient to let go a moment sir returned mr flintwinch i'll first hand mr arthur a little note that i have for him he did so it was in his mother's maimed writing on a slip of paper and contained only these words i hope it is enough that you have ruined yourself rest contented without more ruin jeremiah flintwinch is my messenger and representative your affectionate m c Clennam read this twice in silence, and then tore it to pieces. Rigaud, in the meanwhile, stepped into a chair, and sat himself on the back with his feet upon the seat. "'Now, Beau Flintwinch,' he said when he had closely watched the note to its destruction, "'the answer to my letter.' "'Mrs. Clennam did not write, Mr. Blandois, her hands being cramped, and she thinking it as well to send it verbally by me.' Mr. Flintwinch screwed this out of himself unwillingly and rustily. "'She sends her compliments, and says she doesn't on the whole wish to term you unreasonable, and that she agrees. But without prejudicing the appointment that stands for this day week.' Monsieur Rigaud, after indulging in a fit of laughter, descended from his throne, saying, "'Good! I go to seek an hotel.' But there his eyes encountered Cavalletto who was still at his post. "'Come, pig,' he added, "'I have had you for a follower against my will. Now I'll have you against yours. I tell you, my little reptiles, I am born to be served. I demand the service of this contrabandist as my domestic until this day week.' In answer to Cavalletto's look of inquiry, Clennam made him a sign to go. But he added aloud, "'Unless you are afraid of him,' Cavalletto replied with a very emphatic finger-negative. "'No, master, I am not afraid of him,' 
when I no more keep it secret mentally, that he was once my comrade.' Rigaud took no notice of either remark, until he had lighted his last cigarette, and was quite ready for walking. "'Afraid of him?' he said then, looking round upon them all. <laughs> "'My children, my babies, my little dolls, you are all afraid of him. You give him his bottle of wine here. You give him meat, drink, and lodging there. You dare not touch him with a finger or an epithet. No, it is his character to triumph. Hoof!' Of all the king's knights is the flower, and is always gay. With this adaptation of the refrain to himself, he stalked out of the room, closely followed by Cavalletto, whom perhaps he had pressed into his service, because he tolerably well knew it would not be easy to get rid of him. Mr. Flintwinch, after scraping his chin, and looking about with caustic disparagement of the pig-market, nodded to Arthur and followed. Mr. Panks, still penitent and depressed, followed too. After receiving with great attention a secret word or two of instructions from Arthur, and whispering back that he would see this affair out, and stand by it to the end. The prisoner, with the feeling that he was more despised, more scorned and repudiated, more helpless, altogether more miserable and fallen than before, was left alone again. End of Book Two Chapter Twenty-Eight